Good evening. The Supreme Court today said that two provisions of an Arizona voting law that restricts how ballots can be cast do not violate the Voting Rights Act. That's a new problem for Democrats. The search for survivors in Surfside, Florida is halted as the president visits. Nancy Pelosi announces the new select committee looking into the January 6th insurrection. It includes one Republican. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, July 1st, 2021. The Supreme Court today said that two provisions of an Arizona voting law that restricts how ballots can be cast don't violate the historic Voting Rights Act that bars regulations that result in racial discrimination. The ruling will limit the ability of minorities to challenge state laws in the future that they say are discriminatory under the Voting Rights Act. The vote in the case is 6-3, to three, breaking along conservative liberal ideological lines. Judge Samuel Alito delivered the majority opinion. President Joe Biden was in Florida to deliver a promise of aid in the aftermath of the Surfside building collapse, but he spoke about the Supreme Court decision and said he didn't think it precluded remedies. It is mildly positive in the sense that there's a remedy available based on the particular voting decision. I think that it is critical that we make a distinction between voter suppression and suspension. The ability of a state legislative body to come along and vote, their legislature vote, to change who is declared the winner, I find to be somewhat astounding. But the Supreme Court rule did not rule that way today, the best of my knowledge. And uh, but I'll have much more to say about that because I plan on speaking extensively on voting rights and as well as uh, going on the road on this issue. The court upheld two provisions of the Arizona law. The first provision says in-person ballots cast at the wrong precinct on Election Day must be wholly discarded. Another provision restricts a practice known as ballot collection, requiring that only family caregivers, mail carriers and election officials can deliver another person's completed ballot to a polling place. In his decision, Justice Samuel Alito said Arizona had an interest because voter fraud was possible. In close elections, although no evidence of extensive fraud has ever been found. Meanwhile, Biden drew on his own experiences with grief and loss to comfort families affected by the Florida condo collapse, telling them to never give up hope, even as the search for survivors paused early today, a week after the building came down. At a news conference, Biden spoke together with Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. There's more that we can do, including... uh... I think I have the power, and we'll know shortly that uh, to be able to uh, pick up 100% of the costs for the county and the state over the first 30 days. Well, well, you know, I, I think I'm quite sure I can do that. And, uh, um, and so we're going to do that. And there's going to be a lot, uh, you all know it, because a lot of you have been through it as well. There's going to be a, a lot of pain and, and anxiety and suffering and even uh, need for psychological help. Um, in the in the days and months that follow, we are working together to handle the crisis, to get the answers about what happened here, and we can uh, update you on that. And uh, we are going to be examining every inch of this catastrophe with the full might of the federal, state, and local government to do so. So. Um, 
we want to make sure, we all, the world wants to make sure that a tragedy of this nature never, ever happens again. Uh, but we thank for the support and uh, we do appreciate the, the collaboration for local, state and federal. And, um, you know, what we just need now is we need a little bit of luck, need a little bit of prayers. And, um, you know, we would like to be able to, uh, you know, to, to see some miracles happen. And, but I can tell you this, we're not going to stop, um, you know, until we until we identify everybody and until we do what we need to do. So thank you, Mr. President. And that was Governor Ron DeSantis. Biden added that families asked him the most gut-wrenching questions, including whether there was any hope of finding survivors or whether they would be able to recover the bodies of loved ones. He also met first responders hunting for the survivors in the rubble in Surfside before the pause in the search occurred this morning. And rescue efforts at the site of the partially Florida condominium building were halted, as I reported earlier this morning. The halt threatened to keep search teams off the rubble pile for an unknown period and dimmed hopes for finding anyone alive in the debris a week after the tower came down. The collapse of the 12-story Champlain Tower's South Beachfront condominium killed at least 18 people and left 145 missing. Hundreds of search and rescue personnel have painstakingly searched the pancaked rubble for potential signs of life, but no one has been rescued since the first hours after the collapse. And in Washington, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today named Republican Representative Liz Cheney to a new select committee on the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, elevating the most unyielding GOP critic of former President Donald Trump to work alongside seven Democrats on the high-profile investigation. Liz Cheney of the Armed Services Committee has patriotically agreed to serve on the committee. She has a family matter she's dealing with, may join us, uh, depending on how long this takes but we're very honored and proud uh, that she has agreed to serve on the committee. Representative Benny Thompson, chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, will lead the panel, which will investigate what went wrong around the Capitol when hundreds of Trump supporters broke into the building. The rioters brutally beat police, hunted for lawmakers, and interrupted the congressional certification of Democrat Joe Biden's election victory over Trump. Cheney said in a statement, that she is honored to serve on the committee and that Congress is obligated to conduct a full investigation of the most serious attack on our Capitol since 1814. Her appointment came just hours after House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy threatened to strip Republicans of committee assignments if they accepted an appointment from Pelosi to the panel. He seemed to step back from that statement, from that open threat earlier today. Let me be very clear. I'm not threatening anybody with committee assignments. What I'm saying is... It was shocking to me that if a person is a Republican, they get their committee assignments from the Republican conference. For somebody to accept committee assignments from Speaker Pelosi, that's unprecedented. Do you believe that President Trump, former President Trump, is accountable in some way for what the events leading up to January 6th? What I looked, have you read the Senate report? Were you concerned about when they found IEDs in the morning? Did we not call the FBI? Why was there not communication that had direction from leadership? Because leadership wasn't talking. There's so many failures along that way. That's what we want to make sure never, ever happens again. Former President Trump was that. the president at the time. Too, Does he have yeah, no was, responsibility? Yeah. I was going to ask whether you, um, when you were going to appoint people. Because she's, she could go at, she has a quorum now that she's appointed Cheney. Mm -hmm. So... It, it would appear to be in your, in your interest to get people on this thing now. You think it's in my interest that it's a political game of what she's playing. When I have news on this, I'll provide the news. Paul, how are you doing today? Did I upset you last time? No. Oh. 
I thought from your article I must upset you. <laughs> House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy cutting it up with some of the members of the press corps. The Wyoming Republicans' appointment to the panel and the warning from McCarthy underscores the sharp and growing differences between the two parties over the insurrection. Speaker Pelosi said the select committee's formation was prompted by the FBI director. The director of the FBI, when he basically said there were more deaths from domestic terrorism than from global terrorism in our country in the previous year. Uh, testimony from the Department of Homeland Security about concerns that are out there. All of these institutions talking about, well, I, I hate to even go there, but it's what they have said in terms of white supremacy, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all of these attitudes that have, well, contributed to what happened on January 6th. You can go to speaker.gov to read the findings which establish the purpose of what we are setting out to do, to make sure that this never happens again. Donald Trump's company and its longtime finance chief were charged Thursday in what prosecutors called a sweeping and audacious tax fraud scheme in which the executive collected more than $1.7 million in off-the-books compensation, including apartment rent, car payments, and school tuition. Trump himself was not charged, but prosecutors noted that he signed some of the compensation checks at the center of the alleged scheme. It's the first criminal case to come out of New York authorities' two-year investigation into the former president's business dealings. Weisselberg, a longtime associate of Trump, was taken to court in handcuffs today in downtown Manhattan. The case was brought by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. in a joint investigation with State Attorney General Letitia James. Lawyers for the Trump Organization spoke to reporters outside the courthouse. In 244 years, we have not had a local prosecutor go after a former president of the United States um, or his employees or his company. That is a significant line to cross. And quite frankly, not just as a lawyer, but as a citizen, we're very concerned about that. So that in the future, if some prosecutor in a different political jurisdiction, in a red state or in a red county, decides to take aim at a federal official or people close to them, and then the rest of the country complains, well, this case is setting that precedent. The Attorney General's office and the District Attorney's office brought a joint prosecution here because they dislike Donald Trump politically. They subpoenaed millions of documents from him personally and pressured witnesses that, so that those witnesses, trying to make those witnesses tell them things that, that Donald Trump, that they wanted to hear, that Donald Trump had done things criminally, which they did not, the witnesses did not do because they could not do. I think you can all see what has happened in the press, what you've seen over the last year, and the comments that Attorney General Letitia James has repeatedly made. She campaigned on a promise that she would get Donald Trump. She repeatedly said she would use all areas of the law to get Donald Trump. And this is a joint prosecution. We will win this case, but this case should have never been brought. It is a political prosecution 
It's un-American, and it is a sad day in New York that this occurred. Attorney General Letitia James responded in a statement today. She said, today is an important marker in the ongoing criminal investigation of the Trump Organization and its CFO, Alan Weisselberg. In the indictment, we allege, among other things, financial wrongdoing, whereby the Trump Organization engaged in a scheme with Mr. Weisselberg to avoid paying taxes on certain compensation. This investigation will continue. We will follow the facts and the law wherever they may lead. According to the indictment from 2005 through this year, the Trump Organization and Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg cheated tax authorities by conspiring to pay senior executives off the books by way of lucrative fringe benefits and other means. In a statement, Trump condemned the case as a political witch hunt by the radical left Democrats. Weisselberg's lawyers said he will fight these charges. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Dreading a return to crowded congregate shelters, men staying at a Hell's Kitchen hotel protested the city's decision to transfer them away yesterday. The protest was was held outside the Four Points by Sheraton on West 40th Street. It's one of at least five hotels in the area being emptied out this week as the city shuts down its COVID temporary housing program. WBAI was there yesterday as the temperature hovered around 100 degrees. Peter Trapani is a resident who expects to be sent back to a shelter in the Bronx. How did you come to live here? Where did you live before that? We were at 36 at the Doubletree and the uh, lease ran out there so they had us move to this hotel. We were originally in the Bronx. They moved us out for COVID because they're saying you can't have so many people crammed in a space. You need to have so they put us in one and two man rooms. COVID's still here, but they want to move us back to the shelter. So are you sharing a room in here now? Yes. What happens to you when they uh, if they help you leave? Uh, we have to be uh, bussed out, and uh, we're going back to either. The, the lowest is a four-man room, and the highest is a 16-man room. Depends. Depends. They decide. You don't have any yeah, choice. Yeah, you have any choice of where you go. Right. Oh, my gosh. And where are you from originally? I'm originally from Florida. How'd you wind up in New York here? Uh, my ex-landlord told me that New York City has a permanent shelter system. So if you on the streets... You're able to have a place, and then they will work with you to get apartments. I've been here two years. What happened? Uh, I came in 2019, was in Clay Street for about three months. Then they moved me to here, to uh, East Tremont in June. I came in April April of 19. They put me in here June or July of that same year. And then we were in there for about a year until COVID hit, and then they moved us over to Manhattan. What do you think of this situation? Two people to a room in a hotel? How's that? I think it's ideal. Two, one to two man rooms. You're not having a bunch of people who are going to butt heads. And I think, I was like, right now I'm in, I'm in the room with my friend. We've been in the same room since we've been in the hotel housing. What's going to happen? You're going to be separated. You don't know where you. We, we don't be separated. We'll, we'll be in the same. We'll be in the same building, but we might not be in the same room. They might put us in the same room. We don't know. So, what do you think? What should? Uh, what do you need? What is? What should the city be doing? They should. They have the buildings to house us. They should house us. There's over a thousand buildings in this, in Manhattan, Manhattan alone, 
that are ready for housing or condemned and can be put into housing and they don't want to do it. They say it costs too much money. But they're spending $8 million a year or about $8 million a year just to house us. All right. Very good. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Appreciate it. Peter Trapani is a resident of the Four Points by Sheraton Hotel on West 40th Street, which is being shut down. It was used for the last seven or so months as a place for people to go to escape the congregate conditions, which were linked to the spread of the COVID epidemic. The mayor of New York has decided that it's time for these hotels to return to being hotels and for these residents to go back to their shelters. Midtown South Community Council President John Mudd says, not in my backyard or NIMBY feelings are a big problem. And although he's head of a community group, he says he supports the right of the homeless people to stay. They say they're sensitive and that sort of thing, but when you want to move people out of the situation, it's NIMBY. They came to me wanting me to support the actions of moving people out of this area. I would not sign on, and that's where I, I get a little backlash because I want the problem. I, and, I, and I get it. Maybe they should have handled it better and maybe spread the sheltered people in different areas. I hate the word of homelessness because it brands them. I mean, any number of us could be there tomorrow. And after this reporter left, WBAI got a call from witnesses who say Peter Trapani was prevented from returning to his room in retaliation for participating in the news conference. Organizer Marnie Halasa tells the story. Peter was retaliated against for attending the press conference. He was evicted from his room at the hotel for six hours. So he was basically in the lobby of the building or out on the street, you know, the sweltering heat for six hours. He didn't want to leave because they said that they were going to transfer him. Uh, but then also, like, he went back in his room as all, all of his stuff was gone. They packaged up his stuff. But also, which was really bizarre, is that he had $500 in a safe, and that, that money is, is now missing. And it was locked in the safe. This happened, this was, uh, this is all yesterday. So I put in a call to the legal aid attorney. I called the ombudsman who regulates the compliance of nonprofit providers. I'm just trying to get the word out is that, you know, the shelter resident who was advocating for himself was retaliated against. What was the retaliation for, in your opinion? Because he participated in, I had a press conference for the shelter residents because they're really scared to go back into the congregate shelters because the Delta variant is less than 14% of shelter residents are vaccinated. So that really puts them in harm's way. Before the press conference, there was something like, I don't know, like 15 people from the nonprofit provider uh, and the hotel security came out on the street tried to intimidate us, tried to say, oh, you can't stand on a public sidewalk. <laughs> no, obviously we can't stand on a sidewalk and have a press conference. We're allowed to do that. We stood our ground and they went back inside. But I think definitely Peter experienced some pushback because of that. Now you have these uh, not-for-profit congregate shelter and other health care providers. Is this typical of what you see or is this this group or is this something you could run into at any one of these shelters? Some nonprofit providers are better than others. What really should happen is that the city should set a quality standard 
and that if the nonprofit provider isn't providing that quality standard, they should lose their license. But the city should set a, set a standard. The nonprofit providers get paid and then they divvy out the services as they see fit. If they're not providing a quality service, it's, you know, it's the shelter residents that really suffer. And, you know, that's not really fair. I wish people would, instead of seeing poverty in front of them and just, uh, you know, oh, I don't want to see poverty. I wish they would put yourself in, in their shoes and really see, have some compassion and some empathy for, for people. I, that, that's what I would like New Yorkers to see. The New Yorkers that I talk to, they see this from compassion. You know, they want people who are homeless. They want them to be housed. And if they need supportive services, they want them to have supportive services in the building. So I feel like that's what New Yorkers want to see. They want to see the city transform so every, everybody has housing. Activist Marnie Halasa. WBAI has made several calls to the Neighborhood Association for Intercultural Affairs, the nonprofit running Four Points by Sheraton as a shelter. They have not returned our calls as of this broadcast. Jacqueline Simone is a spokesperson for the Coalition for the Homeless. She says the city is pushing too fast to empty hotels, adding that COVID variants are still a big problem. Yeah, it is a very sad situation because for several months, um, the hotels provided a safe, private space for people to be protected from the virus. And even though the pandemic continues and we have the new Delta variant spreading in New York City, the mayor has made the misguided decision to prematurely move people from the hotels and back into congregate dorm-style shelters despite the risks to their health and despite many of the other ancillary benefits that the hotels have provided to people, such as a greater sense of security and well-being because they had more privacy and their own shower and bathroom and just a greater sense of dignity, as well as air conditioning in the midst of a heat wave. It was sad enough to see literally clothing and other items being taken in bins and loaded mm-hmm. into into vans. One of the residents who spoke to me about their experiences in the shelter in the Bronx and then here in the city for the last seven, eight, nine months was retaliated against, were, were not mm. allowed back into the, into the building. Is that kind of thing common or is this a, an unusual situation? Retaliation should not happen. I, I can't tell you that it never does happen, but I would encourage anyone who feels that they are being retaliated against or that are un- who feel that their ability to advocate for themselves is being impeded should definitely reach out to Coalition for the Homeless or other nonprofits that are that are helping people to assert their rights. Um, you know, these moves are being done in a very fast and haphazard way because Mayor de Blasio has set an arbitrary deadline for returning people to congregate shelters by the end of July. So rather than doing a, um, a more deliberate and careful assessment of each person's needs and the protections in the congregate shelter where they will be returning and these individualized assessments, there's sort of this rush to move busloads of people back to congregate shelters, which is just set through this arbitrary goal of the mayor to to say that the city's reopened and the pandemic is over. Do we know the vaccination rates and the COVID rates in the shelters right now? It's hard to say exactly because the Department of Homeless Services doesn't track the full vaccination rate. But we do know that DHS has done 
vaccinations um, through through a mobile vaccination program. For a time, they also had a vaccination pod in the DHS shelter system. And I believe about 6,700 adults in the DHS system, last data we heard, had received vaccinations through that program. Now, there might be more people who got vaccinated, say, through a Walgreens or health and hospitals or any other community-based vaccination provider who wouldn't be counted in that but then there are also people who aren't in the single adult shelter system which is more congregate by nature who are also included in dhs's number so it's hard to say exactly what percentage but based on the the snapshot of data that we've received from dhs it does seem like there's a lower rate of vaccination in shelters than in the city as a whole which again is still um not not everyone is vaccinated by any means. Um, and I think we when we look at vaccine rates, we also need to remember that this is the result of a lack of access for many people. Many people who are homeless are not connected to healthcare providers or they might be skeptical or distrustful of healthcare providers based on past experiences and systemic racism in the healthcare system. Instead of rushing to return people back to congregate facilities, the city should really be taking this time to reduce some of that vaccine hesitancy and access issues for homeless New Yorkers and to also help people ensure that the congregate facilities have all of the ventilation and other upgrades that they would need in order to be as safe as possible. The federal government has said that FEMA will reimburse through, I believe, September at this point. Jacqueline Simone is a spokesperson for the Coalition for the Homeless. In New York City, nearly 80,000 men, women and children are homeless. Every night, nearly 4,000 people sleep on the street. And that's some of the news for Thursday, July 1st, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. 